Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at InCommonPod and read our blog and find all of our episodes on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast app. Today, Michael and I are speaking with Henrik Osterblom. Henrik is the science director of the Stockholm Resilience Center and a professor at the University of Stockholm in Sweden. He has been at the Stockholm Resilience Center nearly since its origin and has had a variety of perspectives about the goals of the center and why it's been successful so far. His research spans a variety of topics linked to ocean governance, including the role of transnational corporations, cultural evolution, fisheries management, and seabirds in the Baltic Sea. He has a PhD in marine ecology from the Department of Systems Ecology at Stockholm University and a master's degree in behavioral ecology from the Department of Zoology at Uppsala University. In the episode, we talk about the origins of the Stockholm Resilience Center and the approach the center takes to try and make cooperative science work. We then discuss a piece Henrik co-authored in One Earth titled Unsustainable Science, reflecting on the practices of the science system and our current challenges as scholars navigating current structural incentives. We then discuss an ongoing project called CBOSS, engaging with top seafood industry actors through conversations and negotiating time-bound sustainability commitments in their practices together with scientists. This is the In Common Podcast. I've been pretty excited about this. Uh, I've been following the research at Stockholm Resilience Center for a while now. I studied down in Lund, so not so far away. And a lot of great folks up there. I think it would be great for, for those of us who are maybe not too familiar, one, to first get a, a little bit of background about your own education, your own history moving up to where you are now at uh, Stockholm University and Stockholm Resilience Center, and then lead into a little bit about the, the mission of Stockholm Resilience Center and what it tends to focus on. What's the best place to start? Well, I, um, I guess I started uh, university in uh, Uppsala, uh, a place in Sweden, where uh, that was the, the closest place to, to where, uh, where I lived. It was uh, sort of a default choice of, of university studies. I wanted to get into uh, marine biology and I started taking sort of chemistry and biology and I couldn't really get going and figure out what it was that I wanted to do. And then uh, I was accepted to a marine biology program, an exchange student program in, in Canada, in British Columbia, a place called Banfield. And um, started taking marine biology there for a full semester, being out in, in the Pacific and, and really enjoying uh, life and, and education there and realizing that, you know, the thoughts that I had earlier that I wanted to get involved in marine biology was uh, very clearly emphasized by, by, the, by the insights that I got from that place. I still really didn't know what to do, but I was offered an opportunity to work at a, at a seabird research station in British Columbia after, after my studies there. So I, I went out with uh, just a few other colleagues and spent two months out in a little Pacific island that's uh, one by one kilometers large. And it is one of the biggest colonies in the world of a small seabird called Cassin's Auklet. So we were, we were studying those birds and realizing that uh, you know, if you study birds, you, you get a really good picture on what's happening in the ecosystem. And uh, just by studying the birds, we realized that there's an El Nino coming. So really wanted to study marine biology, uh, getting excited about uh, the ways that we can use uh, seabirds to monitor change in the ecosystem. Then coming back to Sweden, I, I 
was able to do a master study on on seabirds in in the Baltic Sea and and start to engage in how does change in the Baltic Sea how can that be translated into the dynamics of seabirds so really a focus on on behavioral ecology and ecosystem science so that was my master's program really trying to understand uh, ecosystem interactions and, and seabirds as, as indicators of change. I think that was my, my start into finding focus and figuring out what it was that I wanted to do. I knew somehow marine biology, somehow ecosystem management, somehow sustainable ocean. And then I started with seabirds and, and ecosystems as a way of understanding what's actually happening underneath the surface. Yeah, so I guess that's, uh, that, that was my background from my undergrad. And then um, I was able to present that work to the Minister of Environment at the time in Sweden. And, and she was really interested about the fact that, oh, that's how an ecosystem works, she said. You know, the, she was a minister and, and she still had no idea what an ecosystem was because there was just all these plankton and fish. But the birds, I think, was a good starting point for understanding what's actually happening in there. And, and that gave me an opportunity to work in something called the Commission on the Marine Environment. So it was a, a one-year uh, process where we were asked to describe for the government the state of the art of the ocean and uh, what the problems were and what policies could be implemented to to solve all the problems basically. So we had nine months to to develop this policy report and that uh, eventually resulted in me taking a job for the government and working as a policy advisor to uh, the Swedish government on, on ocean issues. So really trying to link my ecosystems understanding with uh, an understanding of how, how is policies actually being made, really trying to figure out the different logics and, and rationales that, that we as scientists use and, and think that's how the world works. And then working in government office and realizing, oh, there's, there's a completely different way in which you can describe that the world works and what's important and, and what's, what to focus on and so on. So I think those sort of parallel tracks were really confusing to me, but also really important to understand that you can really look at the same exact place and draw very different conclusions depending on your, your backgrounds and, and, and priorities and what was regarded as important. So, so um, I think I was sort of getting going into where I wanted to be, uh, being part of shaping policies and practice associated to the ocean in that national context. And was also at that time accepted as a PhD student at, at Stockholm University at a place called Systems Ecology while also we had our first child. So this is back in 2002, three and four, uh, where I kind of had three jobs at the same time and was completely confused most of the time, but was was still able to sort of provide a bit of a foundation for what it was that I wanted to do, which was basically understand how the ocean work and how people associate to the, to the ocean is uh, influencing and shaping policies associated to it. So I think that was sort of a, getting a PhD and quitting my job at, the, you know, at the, the government then got me into more of a full-time science uh, track, uh, working at Stockholm Resilience Center and being part of shaping the, the marine research team at the center. This is back in 2006 and seven when the center started and I was able to work in a larger group of individuals with very similar interests and, and also sort of studying ecosystems and uh, e institutions around them. Uh, in order to understand what's happening in the ocean. That's a really interesting transition, I think, how you went from undergraduate into working closely with government policy. What was your motivation to come back and then do the PhD 
and then focus more on academic work rather than continue into more uh, governmental or policy work? Yeah, it was a, it was a change of government, and and we have been working really close to the minister of environment, really being her sort of next to her uh, strategic advisors. And to be honest, I think some of the people working sort of in the line management of the ministry were frustrated by our sort of the thinking and approach to sort of far out the long-term policies. They were often very focused on the long-term. So we were often causing trouble with sort of the environmental advisory council, sort of a think tank within the governments that I worked for. And then when there was a shift from a social democrat to a conservative government in, um, in Sweden, they were happy to kick us out. Uh, so I, I didn't have an opportunity. I lost the job at the government. And that was about the same time as the Stockholm Resilience Center was established. And that was a really exciting place for me to start. I, I knew Carl Folke uh, a bit from before, from systems ecology. And Johan Rockström was the director at the time, uh, was somebody I'd worked with, uh, together with uh, Will Stefan and some other people in my role as a, as a government advisor. So that was a really easy transition to make and, and a sort of a new exciting arena for, for really collaborating across disciplines and combining science with, with um, sort of policy change. I think for those who are not as familiar with the center, maybe you can give us a, a brief review of what the purpose of the center was back when it started and what some of the focal areas were in research back then. And then hopefully that'll lead up into some of the projects that you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was back in 2005 and six where one of the major Swedish uh, strategic research investors, uh, an organization called Mistra, they realized that Sweden really has an opportunity to take on uh, sort of a, a new kind of science at that time, or really well, sustainability science was still pretty new back then. And, and they realized that Sweden has an opportunity to really develop a, a multi and transdisciplinary center on sustainability. So they, they put out a call for uh, a national center and, and three different consortia applied for it. But it was really, uh, the ambition of MISTA was not to do applied research, but to really try to figure out what is uh, sustainability science. They had run a couple of projects before, quite a few actually, where they had had sort of natural and social scientists together in projects, but they have never really advanced beyond disciplines working together. They really wanted to invest in the long term to get sort of more profound and integrated collaboration across scientific disciplines for sustainability. So that was a sort of a, an independent research funder who thought that this was a good idea. And then of course, the consortium led by Carl Folk and Johan Rockström won this bid and were able to receive then 12 years of seed funding from Mistra to do basic science, connecting disciplines and advancing an understanding of sustainability, I guess, challenges and, and opportunities. So it's really a, a basic science center. I know uh, there's often a perception that uh, the Stockholm Resilience Center is sort of a think tank or an advocacy organization, but the whole purpose has been to develop uh, basic science. And then with that science, uh, help advance policies and practice for sustainability. And I think the, the research focus as you uh, asked about, it's, it was really about uh, cities and agricultural systems and uh, the marine environment, but also combining these place-based research uh, areas with more conceptual thinking on adaptive governance and, and sort of economic systems and, and, and complexity. So really trying to combine very empirical with conceptual work 
uh, within a, an overall framework of, of resilience for sustainability. So you came in there uh, either it was during your PhD or after your PhD? Well, pretty much right after my PhD. So was there a specific project that you got involved in from the beginning that you, that you worked on or were you working in a couple of different projects there? Well, my main focus from the beginning was uh, was really on, on the Baltic Sea, on, on the ecosystem and, and its management. So basically the same kind of work that I have done for my PhD, but working much more uh, broadly with, with colleagues from sort of sociology and, and philosophy and, and also other colleagues from ecology and try to combine these many different perspectives, you know, from with political science and, and uh, legal systems. It was a it was a multidisciplinary Baltic Sea project that was my main focus. Mm. And that then uh, was sort of a starting point for me into in engaging more as sort of a research leader, uh, focusing on uh, developing the entire marine theme that was from the beginning really uh, ecosystem focused and increasingly on on institutions and then increasingly on on uh, on, on markets and value change and financial actors and and so on. So it's kind of a starting small and then scaling outwards to include uh, increasingly diverse perspectives in, in that understanding. Yeah, Henrik, I had a few follow-up questions about the Stockholm Resilience Center. I think it's, I mean, it's enough of a brand name in the science community that it can it can be perceived as this kind of monolith because you, it's it's very well known. It's kind of this you know, the shiny castle on the hill where this extraordinary work has been done for such a long time. And I'm not going to be able to make this question more specific, but I'm, I'm curious about, you know, it's always different to be on the outside versus the inside. When you're on the outside, you have, you, you're aware of the brand and the overall impression that something's really prestigious and there's a lot of good work done. Being on the inside for such a long time, what are some things about the Resilience Center that maybe are less obvious to outsiders about how it works? What are the challenges it's met and how it's met them? And then I had a follow-up question, which I'll put out now and can, can reiterate later is, it seems like because of how successful the, the center has been, that it must be such an opportunity for someone to go work there, to be surrounded by all these um, extraordinary people. And because of this opportunity, is there a discussion at the center about recruiting underrepresented groups, um, promoting diversity uh, of these opportunities? Because again, it seems like it's such a hub of these activities and it must help people to be involved in it in numerous ways because science is such a social enterprise. I'm curious about whether or not that's a conversation that's been had by yourself or other actors that you're aware of at the center. So. I'm aware that was a lot, but those are the two main questions that I had. Yeah, thanks. Uh, the shiny castle on the hill, that's a, <laughs> that's a funny description. All right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, I don't really know where to start. I mean, we, we started basically as, a, you know, in 2006, we were uh, 25 people. And, mm -hmm. and uh, today we're, we're well over 100. We're, depending on how you count, you know, close to 150 people. So when you're 25, you guys know this, the, so the, the social norms and the ways of interaction are very different from, from when you are 150 or, or 60 or more. So of course, the, the whole point of the center is that you can achieve a lot more if you collaborate. That's sort of the, the purpose of, of the center and, and diversity helps uh, innovation. So uh, 
of course, the diversity is much larger when you're 150 than when you're 25. But I think the basic idea still holds true is that we these research themes uh, are not projects. And that's why I kind of hesitate when you ask me what was the first project I work on, because the projects are always secondary. Uh, the research themes, uh, uh, that's the place where, where you innovate. And, and the basic mechanisms for uh, doing science uh, at the center is just to sit around and talk all day with people that you most of the time don't know what they're talking about because you're speaking different languages and it takes you quite a while to understand each other. So, so I think that innovation, I think that our ability to be relatively successful is that we spend a lot of time in developing collective action in science and, and really sharing ideas and developing ideas together and writing papers together in large groups. Uh, that, that's been the method all along. And, and uh, as you're saying that the challenges then has been when, when the center has been able to attract uh, funding and, uh, and, and talented people, uh, you, and you still want to maintain that way of interaction and make sure that these informal norms uh, continue to be developed. And then of course, as you're saying, as the center grows, the responsibility of the center grows too, to take on much more of a global responsibility. And uh, we, we have been also, to be honest, you know, the, the rapid growth of the center over this last decade has been uh, interesting and challenging. And of course, all these problems always come at the same time. So the sort of the, the tension of uh, that comes with growth and, uh, and uh, ability to keep the center together, I guess could say culminated during, you know, just a few years ago when the, the MISTRA funding, the core funding that we have received that really gave us an opportunity to take the long view and to collaborate because we all knew that we had safe uh, positions for some time. That core funding has recently uh, dried up and we're now looking for new ways to, uh, to establish that kind of flexibility that the core funding resulted in. So less core funding, a larger organization, uh, and, and larger demands at the center takes on a larger responsibility all happen at the same time. So that's a bit of a challenge. So what we have done in order to meet that, uh, or at least uh, prepare for, uh, well, I guess meet that, has been to, uh, you know, we have sort of looked back at our original vision and mission and tried to uh, revise that so that it's more in tune with uh, what we're actually doing and what we're interested in focus on. We have, um, like I mentioned, I started at the center just after my PhD and, and many of the colleagues that have been running the research themes similarly were, were in their postdoc positions. So we have now reorganized such that the entire research theme structure is somewhat different. And primarily it's, it's now occupied by our early to mid-career scientists rather than us older folks. So, so we have sort of a, an entire generation shift that is uh, basically being implemented last month in December. And then um, a new vision and mission, a new uh, funding model, and uh, in general, just trying to uh, reboot the center a bit, as if you will, while also thinking about what can we do to take a larger global responsibility 
working with partners in the global south and also helping to build larger scientific uh, capacity in other places than than in Stockholm. So uh, we've been working quite substantially with our colleagues in in Stellenbosch and and in in Uruguay, as well as our North American and East Asian and and, um, Australian colleagues. And we've been also thinking quite substantially about how can we become more of a global center, taking on more more global issues. Uh, This is just a four or five years ago, we were awarded a a major research grant that focused on on global development. And that has substantially increased our research focus in in sort of Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Latin America. So slowly but surely, I think we are becoming much less uh, Swedish center with North American colleagues to uh, an increasingly global center, while also trying to maintain the social dynamics that are critical for our success, stimulating a new uh, generation of leadership and also a much more diverse group of, of colleagues who are leading the themes. So sorry for a long answer, but you gave me lots of questions. Oh, no, yeah. I'm not sure I, <laughs> I missed some of them, I'm sure, but yeah. No, this is great. So to clarify, Henrik, when you talk about engaging with the other centers, is this the Stellenbosch Center for Complex Systems and Transition and the ARC Center of Excellence of Coral Reef Studies at James Cook? Yeah, those are, those are some of our key key colleagues, as well as the Ceres Institute in, in Uruguay, uh, working quite a lot with a number of different centers at Stanford University and with Princeton among many others, but we're trying to sort of clarify who are our, our key partners and how can we build more of a global capacity in addition to the work we're doing with the Resilience Alliance and all the other institutions we're working with in a, in a large number of, of, of projects, of course. Yeah, it is interesting, this question of growth. I mean, Stefan and I have had this discourse um, with the podcast where, you know, as academics, I mean, everyone has like these different intellectual lives they live, their professional one and their personal one. And professionally, a lot of us kind of lambast neo, neo, neoeconomics, lots of neo things are bad, right? And then we say, well, growth is bad. But then like when we start a project, we kind of want it to grow, right? And so you have to start to get a little bit reflexive and say, well, how much growth is really good? What are we growing for? I imagine it's the same, it's a set of questions that like a startup asks itself. It's like, what is our actual like value proposition? Like, what are we offering to people? And does getting bigger help us provide that value? Because it also brings challenges. I mean, I can imagine 125 people. Yeah, it's hard to maintain social capital with 125 people. I mean, I imagine as it happens, there's going to be some federations formed where you've got like this group over here and that group over here that meet a lot more often than they do with like the larger group. Yeah, there's obviously quite a few coordination challenges with with such a large group, but there's still... Uh, we're getting lots of practice these last few months, obviously, about uh, meeting virtually, and I think it's working surprisingly well. But I, I really can take you up on that growth challenge. I mean, it's something we've been discussing so many times internally at the center and thinking about, well, what do we do with, uh, with what is an optimal size of a center and, and you know, an organization that's you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 that's still sort of the same organization, but when you're 120, 130, that's a completely different animal. So we've been thinking a lot about what's an institutional arrangement that would work best for our purposes. Well, you know, from the beginning, we were very much a research only organization. Now we're 
very much a resource organization with our own PhD subject. We have a, you know, a master class and, uh, uh, and, and lots of other sort of educational activities within the university, as well as uh, executive education and lots of sort of different demands from policymakers and others to engage in, in a whole range of different processes. So despite all this growth, you still feel understaffed and underfunded because there's so many opportunities. But yeah, I mean, we have no idea what's, uh, what is an optimal size. And yeah, I agree with you. This, there's sort of a, this is a challenge between growth because you can or how, how much should you grow? What's, uh, and, and with what purpose? Yeah, I mean, because we're all aware of, I mean, in the public sector, it's sometimes called mission creep. I actually think that's in like a military context potentially, but you have a public agency that's given a particular mandate. And over time, it's been documented that a lot of agencies will ex just kind of extend what their mandate is perceived to be and implemented as. So and agencies tend to get bigger. And this is actually, right, this is part of the critique of the inefficiency of public agencies is that they tend to get, you know, their, their mandate creeps and they get more bloated over time. So we're aware that this is like an organizational pattern mm. in, the, in the public agency. And I've never seen a reason to, right? I think we see that same type of thing for profit corporations, right? I think there's too much of a distinction made between like private and public organizations as if they're wholly different animals, right? Like what mission creep happens every time, right? Like we work before they imploded, wanted to turn into like we life. They want it to be not just about like where you work, but everything about your life. They wanted to like That's put right. their fingers into it, right? And I think you see that in a lot of these digital companies, they start with this one thing. And then once they're successful, they think, oh, well, really we could be everywhere. And currently, you know, I think that sounds a little creepy to us, to a lot of us. Cause I don't, you know, I don't, you know, I want my, no I want my life to have fewer notifications, Facebook. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's why I think it's been so important for us to really rethink our, our vision and mission and try to figure out what is it that we do best or uh, are most happy about doing or uh, right. that what's the what's the added value of a Stockholm Resilience Center and and we should really only do those things and not everything else so yeah that's that's a challenge yeah fair enough well it seems like one of those things which you mentioned before was that you do well is that you create collective action within the science system and I haven't heard many institute leaders talk about in those specific words but I think that's a really great way of framing it that you have to find and the conditions for how people cooperate well, especially if you have cross thematic areas, you have cross disciplinary orientation, uh, like the Stockholm Resilience Center seems to be organized. And there can be maybe if to simplify, you could see it from two ways, you could have these formal institutional structures, these formal lines of funding, these formal ways of thinking about it. And then there's the day to day informality for how it works in practice. And I would be interested to hear how you all have thought about that informal side of it. Uh, you said there that you spend a lot of time just discussing with people on a day-to-day -day basis, not understanding maybe what everything that they're saying, but eventually it soaks in, you start to get an understanding of how other people think and writing larger consortium papers uh, can be a tool for that as well. Was that something that evolved over time to think that that's a useful way to go about learning and co-learning and knowledge sharing within the science community, within the Institute, or was there more of a purposeful aspect to it? No, I think that's, I mean, these different research themes have all evolved in somewhat different ways, but I think the main 
thing that they have in common is that they're places where people meet and share ideas, tell other people what they're doing, what they're interested in, you know, the study area that they're interested in, the methods that they're using, the concepts that they're interested in. And then from that evolve really interesting conversations or reading groups or seminars or workshops. And then you invite other people who fill the gaps from other institutions or other disciplines or with other methods. So it's just kind of a nice evolving conversations with, uh, where most of the time it, it starts with some place-based problem. And then you realize that in order to understand this complexity, you really need to have much more diverse competence to understand it in that place. And then of course you realize that uh, it's, it's operates across many different scales and across many different sectors. You need to engage people who understand those interactions as well. And all of a sudden you have a really interesting and large consortium who are really excited about many different disciplines and perspectives that these people together put on the one part of the problem that you thought was interesting. And then you write papers about that or grants around that or range seminars. So I think it's really, a, it's just lots and lots of conversations. Uh, it's of course, support. It, it's helped to have a sort of an overall framing of resilience and sustainability. And it helps that uh, people interact on a day-to-day -day basis and, and uh, see each other almost daily, except the last year, obviously, but that we also have you know, a large number of internal seminars and, and weekly updates and, and conversations. So basically people meeting in lots of different constellations rather than being part of on one lab and one group and, and one project, you really get uh, lots of flavors and, and uh, ideas. And of course the challenge is that uh, you never know where ideas came from. And everyone likes to think that the best ideas uh, came from themselves. So, you know, sometimes that can be a tension, but you know, it's, it's, it evens out after a while and, and everyone is still collaborating. So it really doesn't matter where ideas originated. It's there, most of them are idea generation is the collection act, collective action process and people realize that and then take that for granted. So- Henrik, sorry, has anyone like Orion wanted to do like a social network analysis of the science collaboration networks at the Resilience Center? Yeah, Gary has done, Gary, Gary and some of my other colleagues have done some of those and they're, they're a total mess and really, really fun to look at. <laughs> sure. And I mean, I know there's some really nice uh, networks published also with okay. Paul Falkus, a big fat node and lots of networks connecting across. But yeah, there's some nice papers around that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I was saying, but I think everyone realized that, you know, no one's smart enough to understand all this complexity. But, but you can get, you can learn so much from, from working together. And then of course, if you're writing papers together, everyone also gets something out of it in the currency that uh, we all uh, pay our dues in. Well, that's probably a good transition into talking about this commentary piece that you wrote together with a colleague in One Earth. The title was Unsustainable Science. And I believe it came out the end of 2019 or so. I, I stumbled across it a little bit later, but <laughs> I think the beginning of it was was talking about, you know, what's the state of the the science the science system for most colleagues and and one of the first lines was good but busy and it would be great to hear your reflections on on that it's a bit of a it's a hooky title and un, unsustainable science and talking about how you and the stockholm resilience center folks have have kind of developed this system of, of seems to be fairly fruitful collaboration over time what has your reflections been on 
looking outwards. I assume it's more of looking out towards the other parts of the science system, which maybe aren't functioning as well. Uh, so it'd be good to to hear a little bit more on what the motivations were behind writing this. Yeah, well, th this paper was, uh, the basic idea came from my colleague, Eivind, uh, from the Bjergnes Center in, in Bergen, another sort of transdisciplinary center focusing on, on climate change. But the data collection for this paper was basically me walking around over a couple of years asking people how they were doing. And good but busy was the answer I got from everyone. So I was trying to figure out what, what does it actually mean that you're good but busy? Is it is it that you're busy because, are you good because you're busy or are you too busy to actually be good? So I was trying to think what that sort of symbolized. And, and uh, the paper goes on talking about the fact that, I mean, of course we're incredibly privileged to have university jobs and be able to work across disciplines and learn new stuff every day. But there still seems to be a feeling of the you know, always being one step behind and always having too many things to do and always having to uh, prove yourself and publish papers and get cited and get grants and always sort of running in order to say, stay in the same place. So the point we're trying to make in this paper is that perhaps that makes us all in science increasingly similar to each other and increasingly unable to do anything innovative because we're all sort of playing by the same rules. We're all trying to achieve the same goals and we're all sort of competing uh, for attention and grants and, and uh, publications where when there's actually so much we could do if we just spend more time thinking, more time talking, more time collaborating in science, but also doing this with different actors in society, with, with governments, with civil society organizations, with private corporations and really finding the, the time and the space to uh, focus in on uh, you know one place or one project or one change process that necessarily doesn't generate any papers or any funds or whatsoever. So we're trying to think of what's the opportunity to create that space to think. And uh, yeah, I think Stockholm Resilience Center has created a little bit of a bubble to think but, uh, but there, we're still also very much driven by, you know, soft money, getting funding, publishing paper, uh, being, uh, you know, communicating and, and being out there to keep that shiny castle in the hill uh, position that you mentioned before. So we're absolutely not free from it. Uh, but uh, we make a couple of references to places and projects uh, in the past and currently that we think are starting to look for different models. And one is the Sarah's Institute uh, in Uruguay, which is basically a place where scientists from different disciplines and artists uh, uh, sit around and uh, try to learn from each other and understand each other and think about ways in which uh, we can engage in sustainability locally in Uruguay, regionally in Latin America and globally. And that to me personally has been one of the most exciting places to go just because there's actually people who only think for an entire week and there's never any demand for any product whatsoever. Although we, we publish papers and things like that, but it's really super stimulating for me to talk to a, a Chilean sculptor or painter um, uh, because they also study interesting objects. They also try to understand the way the world works, but they have completely different frames of references and, and methods and uh, 
ways of, of seeing and interpreting the world. So I think that's that's been really rewarding for me. And also Stockholm University has recently opened up an, an arts center or an exhibition hall actually called Accelerator, which is an old physics neutron accelerator actually, but it's an, it's an art exhibition hall where they use uh, art as a way to stimulate reflection on science uh, with scientists. So again, a new way of thinking about your science and, and what you're doing. Try to sort of put yourself way above and beyond your immediate deadline and grants and abstract that you're immediately writing and try to think a bit bigger and deeper about the more important things. So the point we're trying to make is that these arenas can definitely help science innovate and it can help scientists be more actively engaged in the sustainability challenges. And we need to figure out uh, how these arenas can be uh, maintained and developed and accelerated. So those places are both where scientists and artists meet. And, and I know that's something that a lot of people are looking at and trying to achieve in different places. But yeah, it's, it was a think piece to see, is there any way we can you know, press the pause button or think a little bit more deeply about what we're doing and if we're doing it in the right way. And I think it also comes back to the the growth argument that we had before, how much should we grow and how much should we continue publishing papers that few people write and, and what is the role of science in society basically. But yeah, lots of, lots of sort of uh, thinking in different directions, but a fun paper to write and, and really triggered some interesting thoughts from um, uh, in that conversation of writing the paper, but also with lots of colleagues who it seems felt that this uh, this struck a chord. A lot of people giving lots of feedback on that paper saying that this is this was a nice thing to write. It was a bit different, I read, and it was a bit different, but also, yeah, it resonated with some people, which was which is always nice. Thanks for writing this, Henrik. I really loved it. I remember tweeting it out when I first saw it. It really resonated with Thanks. me for sure. Um, I had a couple of follow-up questions for you about the paper. Um, one is, I mean, does it make sense to view this as a collective action problem among scientists? I mean, you kind of alluded to it, right? Um, so to cooperate is to kind of slow down and try to do, um, try to engage more in activities that in the long run will lead to better science shared among yeah. a broader set of people. And to defect is to keep going and accelerating and I love the reference to like Richard Scarry's busy town to just get busier and busier. And it's kind of, as you yeah. said, right? Like what's to stop some other, some other center from saying, oh, well, those folks are slowing down. This is our time to step in and gobble up the prestige for ourselves. Um, just framing this kind of slowing down versus speeding up as a collective action problem among scientists makes sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a big investment to slow down, but that means that you're giving somebody else the space, but that's what you're supposed to do when you're, I guess when you're, that's what my sister tells me, when you're in a position of power, move away, you know, give somebody else that space. Um, but it's, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's a different way. You have to find different ways of, of working through different parts of your career, of course, and at different yeah. stages of, of centers and at different stages of groups. But I don't think we should be too afraid of, letting go of, you know, this constant rush of, of uh, being, you know, the most cited, tweeted, whatever. I mean, we're being, uh, <laughs> we're being trained to be 
most visible all the time. And that's sort of also part of this growth paradigm that we talked about. But uh, I totally yeah, agree. There's, some, there's something fundamentally flawed with that perception. And, and by slowing down and thinking more deeply, collaborating more thoroughly, I think we could be much more fulfilled and actually achieve a lot more. Although perhaps the, the return on that investment, if you want to use that kind of language, is probably a decade away rather than, you know, you know, right. immediate uh, excitement about somebody, you know, like your paper 50 times uh, tomorrow. You know? There's a, yeah, there's, a there's, there's not as a quick a dopamine hit or whatever the neurotransmitter is. I don't, I mean, I love this advice that your sister gave you. I mean, yeah, it feels like once you've won a game enough, maybe you can stop worrying about continuing to win the game and start playing yeah. a different game. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently reading a book called The Innovator's Delusion by uh, Lee Vinsel and Andrew Russell, and they make some similar arguments that, you know, a lot of the, the in innovation is much more visible, but ultimately systems and social systems require a lot of maintenance, which is much less visible to maintain themselves, right? And so educating the next generation is more about maintenance from a certain perspective. You're not gonna get big new science paper by dedicating more time to mentoring a broad diverse set of people. But ultimately, yeah. the broader system benefits from that. The other follow-up question I had, Henrik, was based on a point that I saw you made in the paper, which I found really interesting, which is this analysis that Elsevier did about sustainability science being uh, less interdisciplinary than other fields. Yeah, that was a Which surprise. certainly, yeah, I mean, it goes against the rhetoric that we yeah. all, you know, we, we have all these flashy think pieces that talk about all the different arities. Do you have a sense of why that is or, or more broadly, what were your thoughts upon finding that out? No, I mean, we were, we were similarly thinking like, obviously we're so uh, interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary. We must be very much above and beyond, but, but no, not according to their analysis. And, and I can be honest with you, I haven't dived into the depth of, of their methodology or, or the data that they use, but uh, mm. yeah, uh, at the same level as you describe it, I mean, it's really, um, but it's something for us to think about. Perhaps we're not that uh, interdisciplinary and perhaps we're actually a pretty small community and perhaps these big networks of authors aren't that diverse, uh, you know, if you, if you think about it that way. But uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting analysis, I think, to, to dive in deeper into. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about uh, when you were describing your, your outreach with some of these other institutes, particularly this one in Uruguay with the artists, it seems one thing is that seems to be a move in, in the same direction is extending the work beyond academia. So moving towards what many would call transdisciplinarity, moving the co-creation of knowledge, knowledge co-production. There's a lot of terms around, around that discourse, I would say. And that one of the challenges with doing that is the incentives within the academic system are not really pushing anybody in that direction at the moment. I mean, it's basically more papers, higher H index, uh, better journals, less teaching, but saying that you're doing more, very few checks on quality. And as we move towards trying to, to change those incentives to try to reach out outside of academia, how does that, I, I keep thinking, how does it funnel back? How do we, how does the system in general funnel those incentives back so that that type of work is valued? And then I always think back to then myself or to the individual saying, how can I be a better conveyor of the value of that type of work, given the this incentive structure that I'm that I'm kind of stuck within? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, 
that also varies, of course, when, where you are in your career, right? I mean, when you're when you're just finished your PhD and uh, starting your postdoc, you really need to get those papers out and, and show the world how great you are and how worthy you are of, of funding. But then mm. when you become a professor and have a longer term funding, uh, that doesn't become important at all uh, to the same extent anyway. But, but I mean, there's still, I mean, it's just, an example from Sweden, where the government wrote in their in their research bill just uh, a couple of years ago that uh, collaboration with society uh, has to be much more clearly uh, explained and described within science. And then overnight, almost all universities in Sweden start to put on their website how much they interacted with and collaborated with with society in different ways. And uh, so, so I mean, there, there could be very small incentives uh, that uh, that immediately changes uh, priorities among universities, and of course, there's still a lot of ways to go uh, before it's actually rewarded within universities. But uh, because our university, as well as most of the other universities in Sweden, still prioritize papers and prestigious grants and, and things like that, but uh, we we have a long way to go, I think, before we really have incentives in place in order for people to focus on, on other things than, than, than publishing papers and, and the like. Mm. That, that's great that they have those incentives and that was such a quick change overnight. One, one thing which maybe it's a little bit more critical that I do worry about is that we, because there's such this urge to claim that the science has a societal impact that we are making uh, in science a lot of claims of societal impact without really understanding if there's an impact or not without really following up uh, on our studies to see if there's actually change there without really actually, I mean, one nice thing, basically doing the same old thing and uh, not really integrating science into society, maybe doing uh, some little bit of a move in the right direction with, you know, more participatory workshops, things like this. Uh, but it's not really that societal impact that we are maybe portraying it to be. And I wonder yeah, if there's a I wonder if there's a risk there. I wonder if there's a risk in kind of saying that we're doing it, making momentum, saying that we've made progress, but yet everything behind the curtain is more or less the same in terms of this academic incentives in the system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's also uh, just looking at our own <laughs> university. You know, you have people reporting on uh, having this meeting with this one person who's from a company or from a government. I mean, it just becomes absurd where when you really try to stretch that uh, so far, it doesn't mean anything, you know, but, but it's just, uh, you're, you're trying to show that you're complying with the new rules kind of thing. But, but I agree mm. with you. I mean, it has to be real. Otherwise it's, it's a total waste of time. Well, I think this is a, it's probably a good transition. I'm, I think it was in the beginning of December, I saw that you, you or some colleagues had tweeted out some work that you're doing on this CBOSS uh, project. And this is super interesting to me. And I just have to have a look at the website so I can explain it a little bit better. Um, but it's basically, as far as I understand, it's a cooperation with different seafood businesses around the world who are in, either engaged in catching fish or the production of seafood. And you're trying to develop a partnership to kind of push an action towards committed, time committed goals for sustainable ocean stewardship. I don't know if that's the good summary of the project, but I would love to hear a little bit more about what that project is aiming to do and how those interactions with those societal actors, those businesses has, has gone 
Yeah, thanks. I think that that's an accurate summary. Uh, it was, uh, I can take you back a little while because it was in 2013, we had a, one of those workshops where we just kind of sat around and talk all day, trying to figure out what would is what it is that we should be doing. And this was a project that uh, should focus on global governance of the ocean and the future of the ocean. And we thought, what is that? And is there a way to organize collective action at the global level? So we, we started to think about private corporations and seafood uh, because we were interested in ocean management and realized that even though we had worked with the ocean for you know, a decade or two, some of us, we still had no idea who the biggest companies were. So we, we did an analysis that took us about two years to complete that we published in 2015, where we talked about the 13 largest companies in, the, in seafood production as keystone actors of the ocean. I mean, these are some of the biggest companies in the world that are sort of dominating uh, revenues and production volumes and are catching animals that are also keystone species in ecosystems. So these keystone species, of course, have a disproportionate effect on ecosystems. And we thought that perhaps these keystone actors could have a disproportionate effect on the global seafood production system. So, I mean, we, we published that paper and we thought that we kind of have to take the next steps with this also. So we started to have bilateral conversations with the CEO of the companies that were interested in engaging with us. And that took us an additional two years to have these conversations uh, where we had lots of help from individuals who introduced us to the CEOs. And eventually we were able to convince eight of them to meet for a first dialogue in uh, 2016. So the conversation started before the paper was published and then we were able to get uh, eight of the CEOs together for first conversations uh, where we were investigating if there was any potential to work together between seafood companies and between science and business to sort of advance the ocean stewardship agenda. And at that time, we were really excited and surprised by their level of commitment and engagement in uh, these issues. And uh, they produced a statement uh, and initiated the Seafood Business for Ocean Stewardship or CBOS initiative, where they have basically uh, signed a document by all the CEOs saying that these are the issues that we will now work on. And we will use science to help guide our priorities and activities uh, over the years to come. So this is uh, November, 2016. And then we've been developing the substance um, mostly uh, quietly without communicating too much and connecting with uh, other scientific partners, uh, civil society organizations and governments to uh, find ways in which we could substantially advance transparency and traceability in seafood production, addressing some of the major problems with labor abuse and illegal fishing, uh, ensuring that the companies uh, mitigate their own uh, sort of climate emissions and uh, you know, engages in ocean plastics and, and many of the other ocean challenges. So this has been an, an ongoing conversation for four years between scientists and the CEOs of the companies, as well as an increasing number of operational staff from, again, now the 10 biggest companies in the world from Norway, Thailand, the US, uh, South Korea and, and Japan, uh, working in aquaculture and wild capture fisheries and feeds production. And the news that you saw in December was basically the 
culmination of those four years of conversations where we now have time-bound goals for when these companies will deliver on the promise that they made in 2016. So it's been a pretty long journey with lots of conversations and lots of interactions and some challenges involved of getting all these companies uh, sort of uh, converging along uh, uh, the same timeline and with the same agenda. But uh, we're really excited about the fact that they are now very committed to delivering tangible results within a clear time frame. And of course, we think that if these 10 companies can stake out the agenda this way, they will be big enough and powerful enough to uh, create cascading effects in the entire industry. So it's a scientific experiment because it's, uh, it's really trying to test the hypothesis if these companies can operate like Keystone Actors, but uh, at least they're willing to do so. And the changes that we have seen among some of the participating companies already, really from not knowing what sustainability means to really substantially recruiting capacity and engaging in many of the challenges that we have specified together. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting and, and we're pretty happy about the progress. There's lots of work to do still, but uh, yeah, it's an, that's an interesting project to me. It takes, it takes an enormous amount of time. It doesn't generate in the papers, but it's really um, what I enjoy doing. Well, it sounds like fantastic work. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the challenges. I mean, this process of of knowledge exchange between the these CEOs and these these businesses. I mean, what is that? How does that even get started? I mean, just learning how the business, how they think, and and how their mentality to pursuing their goals. They're all, I assume, competitors with one another as well to some extent. And, and what, what does it look like from your side? Are, are you making presentations about what you know about that? Is it more informal? I would love to hear some of the, some of the challenges. Yeah, I mean, they're all very different, uh, but they all depend on the ocean for, for their business model. You know, without functioning ecosystems, there's no business for them whatsoever. And it was, uh, you know, all these, we had sort of these, a large number of very informal bilateral conversation, basically, well, it was mostly you and Rockstrip and me and one of the CEOs that met in, in Korea or Japan or Norway or elsewhere, just sitting down and thinking about, you know, what are the problems that are substantially challenging to you that you're unable to solve for yourself, but that you could be able to address if you worked in collaboration with the other 10 or 15 largest companies in the world and with science. So basically a, a very classic collective action framing, you know, trying to see what, what do you need help solving uh, that, that we could help you with. And then try to figure out all those priorities from all the different CEOs on the one hand and looking at the scientific challenges uh, on the other uh, really gave us substance enough for the first dialogue. And the first dialogue and all the other dialogues after that, we basically have one CEO dialogue and one operational staff dialogue every year. All of them are framed by scientific background papers. So for the first dialogue, there were six sort of synthesis papers of the, you know, of climate change, of, of fishery sustainability challenges, etc., cetera, uh, that really sort of created the, the starting point for, this is what science tells you, this is, these are the problems. And then we uh, listened from all the individual companies of what their different priorities and challenges were. And when we sort of had the science out there, when we had the different industry leaders perspectives out there, I think it became very clear 
to everyone involved that all of these problems are interconnected and no one is better suited to address them than the group of business leaders around this table because there were just too many and too complex issues for any government to individually take on. So I think it was clear to everyone that this is, there's no option for us but to actively engage in this with each other and with science. And uh, at this meeting, we also had the Swedish uh, Crown Princess who is a sustainable development goals advocate uh, present as a patron to the meeting, basically telling all these CEOs that uh, I expect that you fix this. So, uh, so she was a really good uh, uh, person to help encourage these companies to act. But again, all the meetings are framed by science. They're very collaborative, listening to different perspectives, uh, you know, really uh, uh, collaborative learning uh, in action. And then of course, we operate with very different logics and ways of looking at the world. So there's lots of cultural clashes along the way, but uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to spend quite a bit of time in, in Japan and getting help from the Swedish embassy to understand what it is that we're not understanding when we're talking to each other. While also uh, me and my colleagues have also spent quite a lot of time visiting companies and understanding how they are doing their business, how they're thinking, how they're being staffed. So really uh, the process of getting to know each other just like when we get to know each other from different disciplines, trying to understand completely different perspectives from, you know, somebody who's buying raw material in Tokyo, uh, you know, or whatever it is. So it's it's been a long time to understand what's possible and what's impossible and why to, to get to where we are now. But uh, yeah, I think these sort of cultural clashes, but also misconceptions on, on who we are and what we want to achieve has been uh, really interesting but it's uh, again it, it's only a small number of people that we're working with and we have a shared uh, goal to advance sustainability and and i think we have a shared vision of, of showing industry leadership for sustainability and a shared sort of excitement about the fact that perhaps this could result in cascading change so we're all interested to see if that can happen or not but uh, it takes a while to get there and, and to be comfortable with each other and to realize that we're basically not trying to cheat each other, but trying to achieve something together. Yeah, this is more of an observation. It's interesting when we think about how change occurs and how it's promoted, I feel like more often than not, I hear the answer to how something happened or how something changed is what a version of what you described, Henrik, which is a couple people met in a room to have a conversation, right? So you and you said like you, you and Johan Rupstrom met with this person in Korea and like that's how a lot of things started. And I think, again, we can kind of miss the importance of that because it is, again, it's more, it's more informal. It's not a big new law that's happening. It's a couple of people getting into a room and making a decision that can then be built upon. So I find that really interesting. And yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, sorry, but it, it doesn't come out of thin air, you know, it, uh, some of the people that helped us get connection to these CEOs were people we had worked with for, for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, being uh, from Sweden, who's normally perceived as a relatively neutral country, and from an institution that's recognized as a sustainability leader of some sort, also created the conditions for which we could 
operate in. It wasn't just like, hey, let's talk to this guy. You know, he didn't just really... bump into someone at a bar. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> Fair so enough. There's like, there's all these legacies that yeah makes you able to sit in that room and have that conversation. And right. of course, there's a long way in that conversation in Korea in 2016 uh, to where we are today. So yeah, right. but it's yeah, not so summer it's for sure. Like a suite of enabling factors that actually made that conversation possible. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that occurred to me is is thinking about the importance of boundary actors. It sounds like there there were people within this project that really need to be able to connect different groups together. Is that something you've thought about? Have you perceived yourself as a boundary spanner or a boundary actor who's able to kind of connect this perspective and that other one in order to promote um, the broader goals of the project? Or have you seen that in other people that you work with? Yeah, I mean, originally, uh, I, I played that role quite substantially uh, by, you know, spending quite a bit of time in Japan and getting to know all these companies and, and uh, being a bit of a central point of contact for many of the different companies and being a bit of a project manager for these initial interactions leading up to that first dialogue. But we also uh, were supported by you know, a couple of different organizations who were really keen to to help us with with funding and with the place, etc. So, over time, uh, the sort of the the boundary spanners became increasingly numerous and diverse, and uh, and over time, uh, industry has also started to take on a much larger role in this. I mean, from the beginning, it was a science project only, and the funding came to us independent of the company. So it was from U.S. philanthropy uh, that, mm. that funding us in this experiment. But over time, uh, companies are now paying a membership fee to the CBOS Fundraising Foundation. And that foundation has a CEO, which is an industry person. So companies are paying for their own coordination. And my colleagues and myself are now only focusing on the science side of things. So there's actually a, a whole science boundary organization and an industry boundary organization. So wow. there's uh, lots of, of, uh, of institutionalization of this initiative that makes it a lot more than a couple of folks meeting and talking. There's uh, sort of very clear uh, rules for compliance and, and a system of graduated sanction. And I think Austrian would be really happy if she saw sort of the the number of layers uh, that we're adding to this institution, basically checking off all her principles by now, but that's been a long journey of sort of progressively uh, making this a robust institution with multiple coordinating functions. So again, it's a it's a it's a growth growing organization, but with a very clear objective of of uh, illustrating industry leadership from from the industry side of things and from our side uh, as an exciting experiment where we can monitor change in real time at the uh, individual person, individual company, cohort of company, industry level, to really try to understand how how change unfolds uh, in, a, in a system with a couple of sort of centrally placed actors uh, uh, using their agency to, to stimulate that change. Also with sort of scientific support. So a bit of a weird relationship there. But mm. uh, I think for me personally, I was a boundary spanner and connector at the beginning, but by now there's lots of people filling that function. Mm. Yeah, well, Hendrik, this is it's fantastic work, and I wonder what the next steps are. I mean, now that you've set up this institutional structure, I assume it's to some extent operating autonomously in the industry and 
what is the ambitions for you going forward for what would you would you like to do would you want to keep building on this project do you have other projects in mind where you'd like to do similar things uh in the next in the next years or so yeah, I mean, I'm actually handing over responsibility for managing this project to one of my colleagues. Uh, I think uh, to me, this is something that I've been uh, uh, working really hard on for the last four years. And, and uh, it's time for somebody else to, uh, to take on the opportunity to run a big project and to learn a lot of new things. So I'm actually gonna step a bit to the side uh, from this particular project. And it also has quite a lot of internal momentum. So I'll be playing more of a board function rather than an operational function so that's uh, that, that's good for me it's good for a project and i think it's good for my colleagues as well and then actually tomorrow we're publishing a paper in science advances that looks at the same same kind of approach try to understand industry transparency who are the actors that should be acting uh, for sustainability uh, with a wider uh, scope looking at uh, a whole range of ocean industries and our ambition is that our our uh, lead author of that paper, a colleague John Verdin from Duke University, will be leading a similar process of change with at least some of the sectors that we are identifying uh, in, in this paper. So uh, we think it's an interesting model of change. I don't think I will be involved in, in running or managing any similar projects, but uh, my role would rather be to collect insights and learnings and, and uh, supporting monitoring of the effects of the initiative that I've been part of, of starting, while also to some extent uh, mentoring uh, other colleagues now taking it over or, or wanting to do similar things. So yeah, I think I, I'll do something else. And, and I'm in a really nice position now where I have no idea what I'm going to be doing the next couple of years. I know I'm not gonna do this, uh, that I have been doing. And, and I just, I've been sitting writing research proposal today, thinking about uh, the fact that I actually have no idea what I'm doing next. I'm not doing another project like this, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a lot of work, but uh, a great work. Yeah, it seems fantastic, work. yeah. No, it's so, been exciting. I mean, I, I learned so much because I was able to connect to so many different knowledge systems than what I usually connected to, but it's also been incredibly exhausting to be sort of a coordinating function with, you know, across disciplines, between science and business, between time zones, uh, between different parts of industries and with lots of external actors uh, and funders. So I'm, I'm pretty beat to be honest, but you know, it's, it's definitely worth, worth it, but uh, time to do something else. Yeah, it's challenging how often excitement positively correlates with anxiety and then exhaustion. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Henrik, this has been this has been wonderful. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you would like to share? Or no, I don't know. Just uh, you know, thanks for for a really nice podcast. I've been listening to quite a few of your your episodes, and I think it's nice. Again, we've been talking about time to think and time to reflect, and I think it's nice to have these kinds of conversations to think together of what it is that we're doing and what it is that we should be doing and what we should do more of and what we should do less of. Etc. So yeah, just appreciate the opportunity and, and thanks for a really good podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in our other content we produce on the podcast, including our full episodes, our insight episodes, and our PEX webinar series, feel free to visit our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at incommonpod. 